You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Seth. And this is Molly. We're hosts of Big Picture Science. Doomsday is in the news again. A popular prediction is that you and everything that you know will be obliterated by the end of this year thanks to an ancient calendar running out. Well, that's pseudoscience, and we at Big Picture Science just can't let that stand. But what about other doomsday scenarios? Some are for real, and we wanted to explore those in our show. So what you're about to hear is from a live event held Saturday, October 27th at the Computer History Museum here in Mountain View, California. As part of the Bay Area Science Festival, we recorded Doomsday Live in front of a large, live, and lively audience. We've broken the two-hour show into two parts. What you're about to hear is part one. Part two of the live show follows next week. This is what went down. Welcome to all of you to come here for an event that could be lugubrious. Welcome to Big Picture Science, live show on Doomsday. If there's only one show you see about the end of the world, let it be this one. Maybe it'll be the only one you'll have to see, depending on which big day it occurs. Big Picture Science is a one-hour science magazine. It broadcasts nationally. It is produced at the SETI Institute here in Mountain View, California. We're on locally on KALW in San Francisco and also KLIV in San Jose. And we also podcast. We cover a variety of topics, um, everything from brains and robots to cosmology and extrasolar planets. And these are all subjects that help us understand the nature of science and technology on this planet and where it's headed. And if it is headed toward doomsday, that's something we need to consider. Okay, just something about the structure of today's event. Now, being a radio show, our staff is accustomed to working in an isolated padded room, partly for the acoustics, partly for other reasons you can guess. (laughs) And we see our microphones, we never see our audience. But today we're here to face the music, you're here to face us on the stage, and insofar as possible, we'll approach this program the same as any other one we produce, which is to say, The show will unfold in chronological order, in the same order you will eventually hear it on the radio. And like any other program we make, there's a chance, and I mean it's really small, that we might make a mistake. If we do, don't wince for us, don't wince for us, Argentina. Um, We're used to this, we do it all the time, and we'll do what we always do, which is we'll stop and we'll pick it up from there. Yes, you don't need to wince, we've outsourced all the wincing. Let me emphasize once again that this is a radio show. This is not a performance. Right? This is a recording, okay? So we're here with scripts, as you can see. There are no special effects, no makeup. You're wearing any makeup. No makeup, no costumes. 
What you will witness is the real deal. This is the real deal. A radio show in the making, the interviews, the sounds, the skits, the mayhem, the mechanics, all that go into an actual radio production, retakes and all. Right, you could say this is radio as it was meant to be seen. Now, the show's, <laughs> this show is 50 minutes and 30 seconds long. Not a second longer, not a second shorter. And that's because we're broadcast not on the, just on the two stations that uh, Molly mentioned, but also on more than 80 other stations. However, what we record each week is longer than 50 minutes and 30 seconds. Today is no exception. We'll record more than what is ultimately broadcast. Now, we couldn't do any of this without the help of Gary Niederhoff, the other Big Picture Science member. Thank you. And, and Barbara Vance, who is in the back of the room, but she always takes front and center every week. All right, in a moment, we're going to grill the doomsday experts like a stack of onions. So get comfortable, say hello to the guy sitting next to you, unless it's a woman, in which case you don't have to. The question is, <laughs> will there be time, having said hello, to say goodbye? Thank you for coming to Big Picture Science Doomsday Live. What better way to spend your last days on Earth? Population explosion, nuclear explosion, plague, killer asteroid, virus X, X-rays from space, space alien attack, attack of the killer bees. There are myriad ways in which the world could end. Global warming, global cooling, real housewives reunion, water wars, bacon shortage, gray goo, smooth jazz, robot uprising, acid rain, and zombie apocalypse. All right, well, uh, some of these uh, things have scientific merit, obviously, and others do not. And so, Welcome to Big Picture Science, because this is a special show recorded as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. Now, the Bay Area Science Festival, it's a celebration of science, engineering, and technology throughout the Northern California Bay Area. It includes dozens of events over 10 days, and we are proud to kick off the opening weekend of this science extravaganza. And we're here with an impressively large crowd, collectively, not individually. I'm personally gratified that so many of you would join us for what is, in fact, a highly lugubrious prospect, doomsday. There are lots of ideas floating around about how the Earth will end. Some stretch our credulity, while others are scientifically sound, believe it or not. We'll survey a number of these ideas to determine whether you should be uh, dumping your stock, all your valuables, in which case we'll have a donation basket outside the door here, <laughs> or whether you'll need to keep writing those estimated tax payments for 2013. I'm Seth Chostak. I'm Molly Bentley. The idea of doomsday goes way back. I mean, just think of Noah, right? It's, it's very strange. Imagine 100,000 years ago, one of your ancestors, you're, you're living on the savanna. You're chasing up some gazelles for dinner. Come on, Oog, we catch gazelle. Would it ever have occurred to you that the world might end? Hold off from kill, Oog. I got funny feeling. Take Zork's spears. Zork returned to cave. Get affairs in order. All right. Well, that probably didn't happen. Uh, and apparently the Neanderthals had no use for prepositions. But today, but today there are countless instances of doomsday prophecy. And now the Maya have gotten into the act. If you've followed the news, you've heard this one. Doomsday scenario one, the Maya prophecy comes true. On December 21st, the Earth is no more. Maybe it's due to a fatal cosmic alignment. Maybe it's a collision with a rogue planet. 
Either way, fiery apocalypse envelops us all, just as the Maya predicted 1,100 years ago. Wow, those are some pretty scary scenarios for December 21st of this year. Guy Harrison, welcome. Guy is a science writer and he is the author of 50 Popular Beliefs That People Think Are True. Please take a seat, Guy. And Andy Fracknoy. Hi, Andy. These guys are getting pretty comfortable in here. <laughs> Hi, Andy. Andy is chair of the astronomy department at Foothill College. And, and we're going to ask these guys about these possible doomsday scenarios. But first, we'd like to get your impression of how likely some of these things are. And in order to do that, we're going to use this highly technical device over here called the likeliometer. Now, is this something that you bought, or is this something? Yeah, well, actually, I made this in my garage, but it's, uh, it's nonetheless, you know, it's a sophisticated device. It is. Now, you called it the likeliometer, not the likelyometer. No, that's right. I didn't have enough hyphens to that. But okay. it's actually fairly sophisticated, Molly. What this thing does, it has some audio input and then an A to D converter, and then it takes the inverse hyperbolic transform of that, really? and it feeds it through some lookup tables, and then there's a D to A converter, and then it comes back to this needle here. So that's, that's what it does. I would have guessed as much. Okay, now we should test this out and at least calibrate it, which you do with any instrument. Right? I will, yes, let's do that. Uh, and that requires your input. So we're going to okay. ask uh, you a couple of questions here. So first off, um, now you react with applause, of course. What are the chances that the sun will rise tomorrow somewhere in the world? That's terrific, and it stays pinned. Okay, now that, that, that calibrates one end of the scale, and uh, how about this one? What is the chance that one of you in the audience will simultaneously win the California and Illinois lotteries this week? We knew this would be an uppity crowd. We knew that. Okay, uh, by the way, you can see that there are numbers here, one through five, and in case you're wondering what they mean, uh, one is apocalypse not, two is it's an uncertain world, Three is stock up on frozen pizzas. Four is make sure your bomb shelter has adequate padding. And five is that's all, folks. Okay, so now, now you know what it is. So well, Now we should test the idea of Maya prophecy. All right. What do you think it's likely that the world will end this year on December 21st? <laughs> well. Yeah, that's somewhere between okay. it's an uncertain world and... Uh, uh, no, apocalypse not. Yeah. Apocalypse okay. not. Okay, okay. so you, you, you all are not worried. We should just go out and have a cup of coffee. Okay, those prophesizing pre-Columbian Americans, just what did they predict? And how likely is it that these ancient people who had no working model of the solar system were able to predict the end of the world? All right, Guy, let's begin with you. So, really, what is it that the Maya said that constitutes a prophecy here? What the Maya said? What the Maya said. Nothing. That's, <laughs> I, I Let's clarify that. What I, were they supposed to have oh, said? Oh, they're supposed to have said that on December 22nd of this year, as Seth and Molly pointed out, we're all goners. It's the end. Doomsday. Viral plagues. Eruptions. Volcanoes. Cats and dogs living together. It's all over. <laughs> but here's the problem. I, I research and write about many, many uh, extraordinary claims, unusual beliefs. And this one, this is one of the best because... It's nothing wrapped up in more nothing. The Maya actually did not even make this prediction. Well, this was based on a calendar, right? The right. Maya calendar, I think everyone has heard of this, or at least it's been in the news. What was the Maya calendar? Well, the Maya, first of all, the Maya were 
in many ways, an impressive people. They lived in Central America, Southern Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, Belize, and parts of Honduras, about 250 to 900. And they had a few calendars to mark the time. One of them was the long count calendar. Okay, it's 5,125 years before it runs out. And according to some, it runs out December 21st, 2012, this year. But it's not an expiration date, okay? And any credible anthropologist, archaeologist, anywhere in the world will tell you, okay? Any Maya scholar will tell you, nothing has ever been found, no writings, no artifacts that indicate the Maya back then actually predicted the end of the world. So this is a, this is a modern invention imposed on this past culture. So just to be clear, this is a, this is a calendar, and it supposedly it predicts that the world will end on December 21st. Now, according to this calendar, on December 22nd, is there a big, I don't know, doomsday sign or something? Is there anything in this calendar that suggests that something horrible will happen on the 22nd or the 21st? No. Okay. So, so, so the calendar just runs out. Exactly. It's just, like, it, what, what happens, everybody here, probably everybody's got a calendar on their desk, a calendar on their fridge door stuck, right? What happens on December 31st? Does it automatically trigger tsunamis and earthquakes? No. You throw it away and you get another one. That's what the Maya would do with their long count calendar. They'd start right, so, a new one. Okay, so Guy, but the big question is, how did this fact, the fact that their calendar runs out, all calendars run out, and this was their long count calendar. They had lots of calendars, right? Yeah, well, they, yeah, they had several. Okay, so this runs out, and now somebody says that's the end of the world. Where does that come from? It's hard to pin down, but some of the people that were uh, early in promoting this most of them said it was revelation. They just, you know, spirits told them, the ancient Maya spoke to them. There's no concrete evidence whatsoever. Okay, let's be clear about what some of the ideas are that are, go that are floating about, because many people do accept this as truth, or they believe this is going to happen. What are some ways that the world might end, at least what has been floating out in popular culture? Well, as with any really good irrational belief, since it's not based on science or anything you know, closely remoted to facts, you can toss anything in there, and that's what's happened with this one. We've got the rotation of the Earth stopping, not gonna happen. We've got solar flares frying the entire planet. Might happen, but I doubt it, okay? <laughs> no, no scientific reason to think that it would happen this year. Um, we've got uh, super volcanoes, um, which will happen maybe a million years from now, I don't know, maybe tomorrow might happen, but there's no scientific evidence suggesting that, yes, it will happen on December 21st. Um, so there's a whole hodgepodge of things, a flipping of the uh, magnetic poles, which has happened, right? The magnetic field has reversed throughout history. It's happened, it happened, uh, I think, 800,000 years ago. But guess what? Homo erectus survived it, so could we, you know? <laughs> Andy, I saw you wanted to get in on that. I want to find out a, a little bit more about just how seriously people take this. Yes, Andy, you, you deal with the public all the time. I mean, is anybody taking this seriously? I mean, other than our audience. I think many people are taking this seriously. And I kind of want to remind our listeners who are a little bit older that this is probably not the first time they're hearing about calendar doomsday. Uh, just 12 years ago in the year 2000, all kinds of people were predicting that somehow the turning over of the zeros on the calendar, the year 2000, was going to lend, lead to the end of the world, uh, that uh, life was going to be over, and nothing happened in the year 2000. Uh, human minds have this real tendency to interpret cyclical endings or cyclically important numbers in a much more significant way than they do any other year. As Guy said so very well, 
uh, the events that people are foretelling are events that happen on regular cycles too, and nothing much goes wrong. But now, Andy, you're an astronomer. Some of the uh, implications of this calendar ending and the ensuing destruction of the world, if you believe that, involve astronomical mechanisms. I mean, how does the world end? It's one thing to say it's going to end, but tell me what actually happens. Okay, so here are some of the ideas that, that are being floated about. Uh, for example, some people say that there's a planet known only to the ancient Sumerians, known as Nibiru, which is on a collision course with Earth and is somehow being kept secret from the whole world by all the astronomers who are engaged in a kind of vast conspiracy. Now, can you imagine if there is a real planet coming at us this December that somehow it could be secret from everyone? That's beyond belief. I mean, this planet would be incredibly easy to spot. Anyone with a small telescope would be screaming about the news. But it's, it's not a secret. I saw a website that shows pictures of it. <laughs> yes, you're quite right. I think some people get confused when they see uh, illustrations of planets around other stars or uh, something about a small dwarf planet, uh, and they get that all confused with Nibiru. Um, there are all kinds of really ridiculous things right now being put up on the web of, around this whole 2012 doomsday issue. And, and you all know about the web, right? I mean, the web is the world's largest library without the benefit of librarians. So there's no checking the validity of anything. Anyone can put anything up on the web. Astronomer Andy Fracknoy on the importance of librarians. We'll have more on the so-called Maya prophecy and why it's scaring people when Big Picture Science returns with Doomsday Live, also cosmic threats. This program was recorded on October 27th at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. Welcome back to Big Picture Science and Doomsday Live. Doomsday is in the news again with the predicted end date of the world of December 21st, 2012. But there are plenty of end of the world predictions out there, and we examined them during a live event on October 27th at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. As part of the Bay Area Science Festival, we recorded Doomsday Live. Now, we've been hearing why the Maya prophecy is not to be believed, but nevertheless, it frightens some people. Well, I wonder if you could give us, both of you, an idea of just how seriously people are taking this, because we're talking about it now, you're discrediting this idea, but there are people that are taking this quite seriously. In fact, NASA has a website devoted to those who are so fearful they're writing in asking what they should do. Can you give us an idea of how it's playing out in the public? Yeah, this is a very serious topic. I mean, it's easy for us to laugh at it, but we always, always have to come back to the point that we do have to take it seriously because so many others do take it seriously. My last book, I dedicated a chapter to it, and I was even asked by some friends, like, why? This is such a silly thing. You know, stick to, stick to going after the astrologers or something. Why this 2012 thing? It's nonsense. But it's not... It's not something you can ignore. The recent polls show 10 to 12% of Americans, adult Americans, think the world will end in December, okay? 10 to 12%, that's not you know, overwhelming, but that's significant, okay? They're, they either think the world will end or they're very worried about it. Um, China, 20% of Chinese think so. That's pretty high. Globally, uh, a recent poll found one in 10, 10% of the, of the adults in the world think the world's gonna end in December or are very concerned about it. That's about 700 million people, okay? That's a lot, and here's, the, here's what's even worse. This, this is what motivates me to write about this stuff. That's the adults. What about the children? 
I would estimate that two to three times that number of children believe this or are very fearful of it or very concerned. And that bothers me. As a former science teacher, I used to have kids coming to me routinely about the 2012 prophecy or the Bermuda Triangle or something like that. And they were just completely swept away by the belief because of something they saw on the History Channel, some documentary. And they, they believed this nonsense, and it, and it troubles me. And you mentioned before about David Morrison, the NASA and SETI Institute scientist who answers questions on the web. He's really quite overwhelmed with this issue of 2012 and doomsday. And he even coined a phrase, a cosmophobia, the fear of the sky. You know, when many of us were young, it used to be that when something new was discovered in the sky, it was a source of excitement or awe. But now, it seems because of all the money that can be made by scaring people, you get one interpretation or several interpretations of every new astronomical discovery as somehow a source of danger. And if people hear enough of this, particularly on the tabloid cable channels, uh, it really becomes part of their mental picture of things in the sky representing doom or danger. And that's not true, really. Things in the universe are so far away and so remote from us that most of the sky can safely be a source of wonder and not of danger. And I should just follow up to say that Dave Morrison, indeed, who runs this website, he has fielded uh, questions from teenagers who have threatened to kill themselves because they think the world is going to end anyway, and he actually does have to write back and take these very seriously, that are some members of the public and young people, as Guy said, who are so frightened they're actually considering suicide. So that's how deep the fear runs. Is this, may I ask both of you, is this just the zeitgeist? Is this just the modern world that we're more afraid of things than we ever were because, you know, 500 years ago, people weren't worried about nuclear Armageddon, right? We, we now have threats, internal threats, that they never had. Uh, is, is there something special about our psychology today, or were we always afraid of the end of the world? Uh, I think I've studied, you know, uh, this tendency we have as human beings to fall for bad ideas and bogus claims. It, it's just something about us. And there's a big misconception. People think it has everything to do with intelligence and education. It doesn't. Very smart people can be tripped up by the most lunatic ideas. So you always have to be on guard. You have to work at being a, a strong skeptic as opposed to a weak skeptic. You have to be, you have to be diligent about your critical thinking because we, we, things like confirmation bias, the way our memory works, the way our vision actually works, not the way we think it works, all these things, our human brain sets us up to be irrational believers and we have to fight against that. I would totally agree with you. Uh, we have many instances in history of various sects, for example, the Millerites and others, who were actually thinking about the cleansing of the world. I think right now that's what's happening. I think the modern world is really pretty complex for a lot of people and to some degree threatening and confusing. And so they'd like to go back to an earlier time when they thought things were simpler. I mean, look, look at the Taliban, look at creationists, Look at people who want to go back to a time when our thinking even was much more simple. So I think there's a tremendous temptation to want to cleanse away the present world, to make room for a, a kind of simple world from the past. And I think some of what we hear is falling prey to that kind of thinking. You've both mentioned the web and things that appear on the web. To, to what extent is the 
the fact that we're all interconnected in that sense. I mean, not just social media, but the fact that anybody can write on their blog whatever they want, and that person would never have been seen 30 years ago. Now the entire world can see them. The web is a wonderful thing as a resource for really good information, but it's also a landmine. It's, it's, a, it's fertilizer for confirmation bias, because once you get a little belief in your head, start surfing the web and it will grow and grow and grow because you'll find all the evidence you want no matter how crazy your belief is you will find reinforcement for it and if you're not a good skeptic if you're not a good critical thinker you're not going to look at the contrary evidence you're not going to consider the source you're not going to ask questions demand evidence you're just going to keep taking in that bad evidence in the end you're going to be an absolutely certain believer in something people think they're terribly persecuted when the establishment doesn't believe them but I do want to remind everyone that not everyone who was persecuted turned out to be Galileo. <laughs> well, well, let me just say, maybe this is just too much the approach of science. But normally, if you have an hypothesis and you subject it to an experiment, and in this case, the hypothesis is the world's going to end, and the experiment is December 21st, and if the experiment fails, then you throw out that hypothesis. Does no, that actually no, work don't. here, no, ever? <laughs> no. So you know this has happened in the past, too. We've had many predictions of the end of the world, some from a preacher right here in Oakland, California. Uh, some of the very people who are currently involved in the 2012 doomsday predictions have actually made earlier predictions that turned out to be wrong. And when that happened, they just revised their date to the next convenient year for their followers. Yep. Or hindsight bias will lead a lot of people to say, oh, I knew it all along, of course. Or they will say, wait a minute, wait, wait, it did happen. It was an invisible doomsday. We've all, our spirit has been, you know, destroyed and now we're new. And I, I get, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. I know it, it's, it's, a, it's almost like a script that they all follow. You'll see December 22nd, no doubt. Okay, so it looks like we do need to pay our estimated tax for next year. Yeah. Darn. <laughs> Disappointment. Andy and Guy, thank you very much. Don't move, but stay comfortable. The Maya prophecy, this is what we've heard, the scenario for December 21st kind of a Maya-December relationship. Yeah, like, I didn't expect the audience to turn ugly quite so soon. But this scenario has actually inadvertently hit upon some important doomsday themes that really do have some merit. Doomsday Scenario 2. A fiery rock five miles across tears through the Earth's atmosphere at 150,000 miles an hour. It crashes into South America, releasing more energy than an entire nuclear arsenal. Tidal waves roar across the ocean. Incandescent dust lifted high into the atmosphere bakes all living things within hundreds of miles. The vast majority of life on Earth is obliterated. All right. Death by rock. What do you think are the chances that you will be wiped out by an asteroid within your lifetimes, thereby defining your lifetimes. How many of you think that's likely? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that kind of weak. You, you don't seem to be worried. I'd reinforce your roofs. The panic over Maya 2012 doomsday, it reveals our fascination, um, our preoccupation, and really our obsession with the end of the world. Writer Gary Alexander actually coined a term for this. Apocaholic. This is a word that we use to describe those who are preoccupied with ever more frightening scenarios. And indeed, some may have some merit. NASA has a program to monitor 
and actually to determine the orbits of many of these asteroids, all the ones that are threatening anything bigger than a kilometer across has already been uh, had its orbit determined. You don't have to worry for at least 30 years. But that's not the only threat from the cosmos, because after all, the cosmos is a violent place. Andy, let's start with you. You know something about asteroids. Now, what is the possibility that we would be, indeed, wiped out by an asteroid in our lifetime? You know, it's interesting that you asked about that, because the Pew Research Center uh, and Smithsonian Magazine actually did a poll, and they found that 31% of Americans think that an asteroid will collide with the Earth by 2050. Think about that. 31% of Americans think that. And the actual chances are very, very slight. That's by 2050, right? Right. Okay. Some of us might not live that long, but that's a good date to think about. I think there's a real confusion here of statistics. We do know that asteroids hit the Earth all the time. We know that 65 million years ago, a very large asteroid caused global catastrophe and led to the dying out of maybe half the living species on planet Earth, including the ones that get the most press, the dinosaurs. And there's certainly going to be some asteroid strikes in our future. But whether this is something you need to get personally worried about or need to take out extra insurance for, that's a bigger question. How big does the rock have to be to cause us some trouble? Well, that's not an easy question to answer in 10 seconds. Um, Rocks of various sizes hit the Earth, and they all make trouble of different kinds. The question is, is the event going to be somehow local only, that it affects the creatures underneath and later can become a tourist attraction? Or is it such a large impact that it can cause global catastrophe? As uh, Seth mentioned, something about a kilometer wide, like a mile wide or larger, is going to have global impact. Not because it hits everyone on the Earth on the head exactly, but because the explosion of something that large dredges up a huge amount of dust from underneath. And these asteroids can make craters of 20 times their size, roughly. All that fiery material dredged up and then lofted into the atmosphere can cause devastation way beyond the place where the impact happened. Well, Andy, Unlike in the movies, where normally you see these big rocks from space, you know, you've got 48 hours or so forth. That's a compression of time that's useful for the movie, gives Bruce Willis something to do. What, in fact, would really happen if we found a rock, say five miles across, the size of San Francisco, that's the kind that did in the dinosaurs, uh, but it's, you know, it's going to hit us in 20 years. What could we do? Well, you're right on the edge of where we have the ability to do something. At about five miles across, we're just barely going to be able to help ourselves. And you know, 20 years may not be enough. I'd like 40 years, or 60 years, or 80 years. The longer time we have, the slighter the adjustment that you have to make in the movement of that asteroid, so it'll actually miss the Earth. What we can do is we could tug the asteroid, we could hit it, we could explode a nuclear bomb. Many different scenarios have been discussed seriously by some scientists and by the military about how you might uh, deflect an asteroid. But the closer the rock is to us, the shorter the time we have when we discover it, and the more power we have to put into pushing it aside in some way. So the bigger it is, the harder something is to move off course. And right now, the latest National Academy of Sciences report says 
that you know, maybe something as big as five miles across might be on the edge of what we can do. Now, bomb makers love this idea because that just means we have to build bigger nuclear bombs to deflect all the threatening asteroids. But it really would be easier if we had a smaller asteroid to deal with. How, how, when you say nuclear bomb, you're talking about explode it near it just so a force hits it, not actually blow it up. Right. You don't want to blow it up because if you blow it up, but it still keeps coming at us with the same course, you're just going to have more rocks coming in at you and uh, the public will be pretty mad. Uh, what you want to do is to take a rock from space and push it aside, even if it's just ever so slightly. Now, are there any candidates right now? Every now and then in the news we hear about a rock that looks uh, nefarious for some reason and then it sort of disappears. Are there any out there that NASA is tracking right now that we should keep our eyes on? So, Molly, there's good news and bad news about this. Uh, the good news is that we've cataloged up to about 90% of the rocks that are bigger than a, a kilometer across, and none of them are threatening us. Of course, there's 10% we haven't found, so you can always hold out hope for those. Uh, but the impactors we're really worried about now are the ones that are a smaller size, because they could still have pretty catastrophic local effects and be really bad for insurance companies. What we want to do is to monitor all those smaller pieces, and that's a lot harder, and we're nowhere near finished doing that. But so far, no asteroids we've found seems to have our name on it. But on the other hand, there are so many asteroids out there that we haven't found, it's really too early to say. Uh, Andy, let me ask you, what are some of the other cosmic threats? Because rocks from space, they've gotten a lot of press. But there are other things. I mean, I know people who look up at Orion and are not exactly inspired because they say, you know, you see that red giant Betelgeuse there? It's just going to blow up one evening and really ruin my whole day. So this is actually something that's pretty easy to deal with. It's true that one of the greatest natural catastrophes that we scientists can possibly imagine is the explosion of an entire star. Uh, we call this a supernova, when an old star at the end of its life blows itself to smithereens. Now, if you were there in the system of that star, if you were on a planet around that star, it would be really bad news. Uh, the planets in that star system would be completely vaporized in the violence of that explosion. But there are two things on our side here. One, massive stars, the kind that blow up in this way, are quite rare. And so there aren't that many anywhere near us. And the other is that these explosions are separated by really long periods of time. So we've actually done a survey. We've asked ourselves, is there a star close enough to the Earth where that explosion could be really devastating for us? Even if it doesn't hurt the planet itself, might it do something like taking away our ozone layer or uh, doing something else to the atmosphere that would be really bad for those of us who like to go outside, to breathe, uh, not to be overwhelmed by ultraviolet, etc. In other words, is there some star that's close enough to really threaten us? And the good news is, there's not. Betelgeuse, for example, is a massive star, which is going to blow up probably, but it's nowhere close enough to have a significant effect on us. So I'm actually not going to take out extra supernova insurance on my home. <laughs> now, Guy, just to bring you into this, what is the most out there cosmic threat that you've written about or had to address? Um, Andy's already mentioned a few of them. 
Well, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder, but Alien Invasion is my favorite. You know, are we, we going to get <laughs> okay, to that? You, are, are we? I don't you, wanna... you actually are stealing some thunder on yeah, that I, one. So. I, I don't want to go there. We'll get, we'll get to Alien that, Invasion. Okay, Aliens. Um, well, what about cosmic alignment? We haven't mentioned that, but that's one of the mechanisms that's occasionally ascribed to this Maya prophecy mm -hmm. that you know, the, the sun oh. will align with the center of the galaxy or something. Oh, well, that... the planets, yeah, there, that's one of the popular ones is that there's going to be a planetary alignment even, which is not going to happen. It's, it's, you know, a lot of things, you can attack them two ways. Is it really going to happen? Or if it does happen, what will happen? And guess what? Nothing. If, if Mars, Jupiter, Saturn got in perfect alignment, we would not all be sucked up into, you know, it's not, the, the, yes, Jupiter has very impressive gravity, of course, yeah, it protects us from asteroids, right? It's very impressive what it can do gravitationally, but it's so far away. It's not going to suck up puppy dogs and people up into the sky. We're okay. It's not, it's not a problem. One of the alignments that people have heard about probably and are scared about is the prediction that we're somehow going to align with a giant black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Andy, can you, I want to say a little bit of an alignment. What, what does that mean when things come into an alignment, and how do you align with a black hole? All right, so, so here's the idea. First of all, you have to remember that to align anything, you need more than two objects. Everything is in alignment all the time if you're only thinking about two points. So the idea would be that somehow the Earth and the Sun would line up with the giant black hole which is at the center of our Milky Way galaxy. Now, for those of you who are not up on your latest astronomical distances, this giant black hole is 26,000 light years away, where each light year is 6,000 billion miles. So you do the math. That's so far away, it's absolutely crazy to think that gravity from that distance would have any effect on it. Uh, the moon's pull is a million times greater than anything we would feel from the center of the galaxy. But the most interesting thing about these alignments, as Guy points out really correctly, is that they're just not happening. There's no alignment with the center of our galaxy that's any greater in December 2012 than in any other December. And there's no alignment of the planets. The planets are going to be scattered all over the map on December 21, 2012. We're not aligning with any kind of special position in the sky at all. So the notion that alignments will somehow cause the end of the world is just utterly ridiculous. You know, interesting point here is uh, 2012 is a perfect example, but a lot of times you'll have one of these, these uh, irrational claims and it's completely unscientific, right? The scientific process, scientific skepticism deflates it immediately, but yet the people who promote it run to science to try to support it. And they use science in a very superficial way to give it credibility in the minds of people who really just don't get the core of science. You know, they may understand something about a little basic astronomy, but they're forgetting the whole, the, the principle of science that it's about evidence. It's not about believing just because you want to believe. That's a, that's a very important point that science is often hijacked by these people. Molly asked how you align yourself with a black hole. I think you just adopt its political philosophies. That's, that's it. One of the things I always tell my students in my classes is that the number one thing you should get out of a good college science course is to be able to ask one question. And that question is, why should I believe a word of this? You know, if more of us asked that question, it would be a better world in general. Andy, you mentioned earlier 
Andy, you mentioned earlier Nibiru, this uh, hypothetical planet that's uh, headed inward uh, in our solar system and uh, will wreak havoc and destruction. But there really are rogue planets out there. I mean, there might be more planets not connected to a star than there are that are orbiting a star. I mean, couldn't one of those just waltz right in here and do some damage? Well, that's what science fiction people want you to believe, right? That everywhere you go in the universe, there are these planets wandering around and one is sure to come across our doorstep anytime soon. I want people who are listening to this program to think a little bit about the distances out there. Um, I have an analogy that might help a little bit. If we were to take the sun and make it the size of a basketball, where on that scale would the Earth be? The Earth turns out to be an apple seed 30 yards away from that basketball. And Pluto, the friendly dwarf planet on the edge of our solar system, would be a dust mode about three quarters of a mile from the basketball. So on that scale, where is the next star? So the sun is a basketball. Where's the next star? The next star would be 5,500 miles away. And that's just the nearest star. All the other stars are even further away. So if you're going to be looking for rogue planets out there, they sure have a lot of places to hide. We have to remember that the galaxy is a huge place. And the chances of any member of the Milky Way somehow making its way into our little corner, our cosmic neck of the woods, is really astronomically small. Now, Seth, in his intro, though, he did say, and he's right, that the universe is a violent place. So in the end, the end will come be because the universe will end at some point, won't it? So if, if these threats don't get us, the natural end date, the death of the universe will. Now, my conscience will be uploaded in a robot, which will jump to a parallel universe. I'll be fine. I'll be <laughs> we, we actually have people here today who can do that for you. That's a guess coming. Yeah. Molly's right that, in fact, the thing that's most likely to happen is that the sun will swell up as part of its natural evolution. The sun will become what we call a red giant star, and the Earth is most likely going to be burnt to a crisp. But this isn't going to happen for another five billion years. And I think, like Guy, I'm pretty confident that we'll either wipe ourselves out through our own devices by that time, or that moving the Earth at that time will be as trivial as today the need to move to Cleveland might be. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that at least Guy has taken care of himself. He's, he's ready to upload himself. I want to thank both of you for being here and discussing uh, the possibility of a cosmic wipeout. Well, we've been talking about threats to the cosmos caused by nature, but it could be that nature doesn't have it in for us in the short term. But maybe someone out there does. Could we become victims of a high-tech attack from beings from another world? Or are there threats from our own biota? How will it all end? It's Doomsday Live. Keep listening if it's the last thing you do. It's a special episode of Big Picture Science. It's recorded live at the Computer History Museum as part of the Bay Area Science Festival.
Welcome back to Big Picture Science and Doomsday Live. Doomsday is in the news again with the predicted end date of the world, December 21st, 2012. But there are plenty end-of-world predictions out there, and we examine them in a live event held Saturday, October 27th at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. This was part of the Bay Area Science Festival. And we recorded the event, entitled it Doomsday Live. And so far in the show, we've examined Maya prophecy and cosmic dangers. As we continue, what else might threaten humanity? How are you all doing? You hanging in there? Okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, we're going to do something a little bit interactive. It's very short, but we need two volunteers. I'm going to come down into the audience and ask two of you what you would do if you learned you only had 24 hours left. So if you'd like to volunteer to give me an answer to that, raise your hands now. I'm going to come down there. And, and, and remember, and, this is a family program. <laughs> it's the kids that could handle it. All right. I've got one over here. Is anybody else? Anybody else? She may have to talk twice as long if we don't get another volunteer. (laughs) I think you may just have to surprise someone. Okay. Okay. Welcome back to Doomsday Live from Big Picture Science. We are recording live at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. This is part of the Bay Area Science Festival. All right. Can, can, Can I have your name? My name is Pooja. Pooja. All right. You've just gotten the word. 24 hours to go before the world ends. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'd probably first just tell as many people as I could. And then I'd, probably, and then I'd spend a few hours listening to music. And then, then I would probably become very religious. <laughs> I'm a very spiritual person. Okay, 24 hours to go. And she got religion. Anybody? <laughs> We have another volunteer over here. Give me your name. Uh, it's Brad. Brad. Seth, you know that guy last week who went up into the stratosphere and jumped out of a balloon and from a Fearless really, Felix. really high altitude? Felix. That seems like a good idea, and it's a lot simpler to arrange if I know the world's ending in 24 hours. Are, are you going to take a parachute, or you just forget that? It's just extra weight. <laughs> who needs a parachute? Okay. That's interesting. You jump. And, and one more. Did you volunteer? Oh, somebody over here did. No? I'm seeing things. I frequently do. Yes. Oh, well, if I had 24 hours left in my life, I would probably um, take a li- really, really long walk on the beach, 24 hours long. A long walk on the beach. And, and what, just look at the sand, look at the surf, just contemplate the, uh, the infinite? Yeah, just look at the sun, look at the moon, whatever happens uh, in the 24 hours. Well, you've heard it, Molly. They're all very spiritual. Doomsday Scenario 3, an alien being dressed in a one-piece metallic jumper and speaking in a refined English accent, arrives on Earth with his humanoid robot, Gort, who together threaten to vaporize Earthlings unless they behave. Okay. Okay, likelyometer testers. Likelyometers. Okay. What are the chances? Actually, I'll let you run it. No, 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 okay. oh, no, 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 I'm not calibrating. Okay. <laughs> what are the chances that an intelligent being will come to this planet from another planet dressed in a one-piece jumper <laughs> to vaporize our planet? What do you think the chances are of that? 
stock up on frozen pizza. Maybe, maybe you can negotiate with them with a, with a pizza. Now, how would the pizza help, actually? Well, I, it just keeps you alive a little bit longer, that's all. Okay, alien invasion. It sounds like the audience thinks, well, actually, the audience thinks there may be a chance of this um, end-of-the-world scenario. Now, Seth, I think that you recognize that reference from our doomsday announcer. I definitely do. That was uh, Michael Rennie in The Day the Earth Stood Still. And uh, Michael comes with his uh, robot pal to give us a warning. In fact, I believe we can hear that warning here. I am leaving soon. And you will forgive me if I speak bluntly. It is no concern of ours how you run your own planet. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned out cinder. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace, or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you. Well, Seth, you're an astronomer at the SETI Institute, and I can think of few people who are as qualified as you are to address this question. What is the likelihood that aliens will come to this planet to do away with us all? Well, let me first say, Molly, that about one-third of the public believes that the aliens are already here. Uh, fortunately, they don't seem to be doing anything terribly malicious because, uh, frankly, it doesn't seem to affect anybody's lives except those who watch Fox television. There is that. <laughs> but I will point out something. I mean, I, I hear from people every day who, who believe that the aliens are here. Maybe not on an invasion course, although some think that. Uh, but I suggest that many of you, of course, fly around the country. It's very seldom that you will go to the airport, sit in the plane, waiting for it to be pushed back from the gate, and the pilot will come on, the PA system, and say, folks, there's some unidentified craft here in the area. The FAA won't let us take off until we've cleared them because they didn't file a flight plan. So no matter what else you can say about alien invasion, it's not like Gorton Klaatu here. They're not here to give us any particular message. Well, so to be clear, whether the aliens are here or they're not, you believe that they're not here? I don't think they're here. Okay. Could they come here, and would they come with hostile intention? Yeah, well, now you're asking me to speculate on alien sociology, and we don't know much about that. Uh, I, I will point out that from an historical perspective, if you look at the you know, analogous situation here, it is true that if you're being visited by somebody from afar, it's most often the case that they are hostile, right? You know, when you think about the Incas or the Aztecs, they didn't meet your average nice guy Spaniard who was coming to visit and you know, sell them Spanish goods, they, they met the hostile, aggressive ones that were trying to make a career by getting some more landscape. So you mean great distances, not someone who visits you from across town? I don't know what neighborhood you live in, so maybe, maybe they do that. But, but one of the reasons I don't believe that this is something that you really ought to spend a lot of time worrying about is that, in my opinion, they don't really know we're here yet. Right? Because the only way that they could know we're here and that we have nuclear weapons or that we're doing something to the environment or whatever, something that might conceivably motivate them to come here and just you know, do-gooders, we're going to save those guys. Maybe, maybe they get a, you know, a government grant to do that. Uh, they don't know any of that because the only way they could know about that is to pick up, for example, our television or our radio signals that are willy-nilly leaking off the planet. But we've only been leaking those signals since the Second World War, really, 1930s. That, mean, that, that means that they're, you know, 60, 70 light years out into space. And the aliens couldn't be more than half that distance to have had enough time to pick up, for example, you know, news coverage of the Super Bowl and so forth, decide they don't like the winter and come to Earth to remedy that. 
and so they, any aliens farther than 35 light years don't know about Homo sapiens. Okay, and I doubt that there are really are many within 35 light years distance. In fact, I don't think there are any. There are only a few thousand stars within that distance. Although you and I have talked about this because the subject does come up given what we do, and you have said that if an alien craft were to land on the White House lawn, let's just say, as it does in the films, you would not stick around. No, I, I, well, that's simply, again, a, a, a tip of the hat to our own experience here on Earth, and that is that visitors from afar often do have nasty things on their mind. Indeed, if they were to land on the White House lawn, as, by the way, Michael Rennie did to try and teach Americans how to speak English, if, if they did that, I, I, I would indeed. I would buy those frozen pizzas and head for the hills because I'm not quite sure what they would do and whatever it is. By the way, unlike in the movies, and, and this is a point perhaps uh, worth making, we in the movies always take on these alien invaders and we always triumph by the end of the movie. That's almost invariably the case. And we're somehow matched with them. They have somewhat better technology, but we're braver or we're more daring or we have love or something, okay, that... that turns out to be the trump card. But really, that's very unrealistic. Any society that has the ability to traverse hundreds, maybe thousands of light years to come here with the intention of ruining your whole day, whatever they have in mind to do, they will do it. Well, I wonder, um, well, I'll have you describe this. In uh, 1898, H.G. Wells, he wrote a novel called The War of the Worlds, and it was famously dramatized by Orson Welles in 1938, and this is an example of the power of radio. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. This was the Halloween broadcast at the Mercury Theater, and, and something in the audience may even have heard this. It was, a, you know, it was a dramatization. It was not portrayed as, I mean, the way it was set up, it sounded like a news story, but they announced over and over Mercury Theater's special Halloween broadcast, and yet there were people who believed that it was real. Now, uh, popular culture has it that a lot of people believe that. In fact, it was not a lot of people that believed it, but there were some. Uh, there was one guy in New Jersey who, uh, because the invasion was taking place in New Jersey. And, and those of us who lived in better parts of the East Coast thought that New Jersey, after all, had it coming, and we weren't terribly concerned. <laughs> but, but this guy was actually happy about the whole prospect because he's, he thought the Martians would get his mother-in-law. That was his, his take on it. But there were other people who actually fled their homes, got out you know, their weapons and whatever. They were ready to take on the Martians. Okay, so it sounds like we are safe, at least in your opinion, from Gort and other aliens for now. I think so. You've been listening to a live recording of Doomsday Live at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. This event was held October 27th, comfortably before the predicted end of the world as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. The Big Picture Science radio team was played by the Big Picture Science radio team. And that team includes Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. 
Support for the program comes from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks to the audience who came out for the live program and to our supporters on Kickstarter who contributed to our campaign and made it possible to bring Doomsday Live to the stage. Your ears have been attuned to part one of Doomsday Live recorded on stage October 27, 2012. Tune in for the second half in the next episode of Big Picture Science when Doomsday Live examines global pandemics and our possible takeover by super-intelligent computers. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can peruse pictures of the Big Picture Science team on stage along with the guests who joined us that day. <laughs>